Hi everyone, Dave here with a quick housekeeping note. A few episodes ago, we interviewed the great Dan Koch from the You Have Permission podcast, and we talked about the SBC Southern Baptist Convention abuse report and cover-up. During that episode, I neglected to mention a, a critical fact, and that was that there were forces within this large denomination that initiated the investigation of these abuses and also the cover-ups, and there also were forces within this denomination that uh, fought to waive client attorney privilege so that the public could see this report from Guidepost Solutions when the report was released. There were certainly people on the executive committee that fought to not have the report released and not to waive client attorney privilege, but the good forces prevailed for transparency to get this report out there. I thought that was important just to be factual and to note Neither Zach or I are Southern Baptists. We have never been Southern Baptists, and we're not defending the denomination in any way. We are just making sure that the facts are all out there. Thank you for listening. I'm Zach. I'm a musician, a former worship leader. I helped destroy Mars Hill Church. I don't really know what I believe anymore, and I'm okay with that. I'm Dave. I'm a Bible theology nerd, an occasional preacher. I've been studying up on knowing my enemy, and I'm an evangelical. <laughs> I believe you're also a movie buff as part of your intro normally. Is yes. that not the case anymore? I, I still am it a still movie is. buff. Okay, I left that part so, out. Sorry, I just... what? what so, evangelical movie buff, what do you think of 2,000 Mules? Oh. Um, <laughs> this is Veterans of <laughs> Haven't seen Wars. that one. I, I'm waiting for a young adult movie ministry to watch it, so I don't have to. Uh, big, big fans of the Nation. Uh, Veterans of Culture Wars is a podcast where we talk about the beliefs, history, culture, and personal stories from evangelical Christianity. We welcome you to the podcast, whether you are a believer or not. And Zach, another episode I'm really excited for. Um, as our listeners know, we recently had Dr. Kate Dugan from Princeton Theological Seminary, who runs the BART Center back on our show. And the first time she was on our show, uh, we talked about all the QAnon nonsense and the crazy world of QAnon. But after that episode, she messaged me and sent me a link to a podcast where she said, this podcast is my favorite podcast ever. And the name of that podcast was Know Your Enemy. I had not heard of it before then. And so I dived in and started listening, listening to a lot of, uh, a lot of episodes. It is hosted by Sam Adler Bell and also our guest. And it is a really, really great show. Uh, been called the, um, the leftist bros study, the conservative movement. Um, it's, uh, <laughs> it was featured in the New York times, uh, with, with that <laughs> guest. And mm -hmm. so it's basically two, Two hosts who uh, study the conservative movement. Sometimes they have conservatives on their show uh, to talk about what they believe. So it's a really great show. Um, as I listened, though, I noted that our guest, as he was discussing various elements of the conservative movement, would talk about his personal Christian faith. And so I thought there was a really interesting story to be told there about a guy who grew up really conservative, was a part of a conservative think tank, the Heritage Foundation in Washington, D.C., and then became progressive, and yet his faith still means something to him. So we're so happy to have on the show 
Matt Sitman from Know Your Enemy. Thank you for being here. No problem. I'm really happy to be here and uh, looking forward to talking with both of you. Thank you for that very kind introduction. Yeah, love your podcast. Uh, happy Pride Day, by the way. It's uh, June 1st when we're recording this. <laughs> that's right. Um, so, absolutely. yeah, that's right. Uh, as I was saying before we recorded, it really got off to a great start with both the um, Marine Corps tweet with the you know the rainbow bullets against the the helmet, uh, <laughs> I missed that and one. the yes, and um, of course the announcement that there will be a, a postal stamp of Nancy Reagan. Um, yeah, announced by Dr. Having, Joe uh, Biden. Uh, a Louis DeJoy coming out to to and, and present right. it or whatever. Yeah, Nancy Reagan, uh, uh, one of the great villains of of the LGBT uh-huh. community. Uh, I think she she goes in the Hall of Fame of, of yeah. Assholes. Ronnie Ronnie and Nancy aren't um, our favorites, <laughs> and I, I think we'll talk about them in a uh, a little bit later. Um, but but first off, what we normally do is just let the guest uh, say a little bit about sort of an overview of their their history with with evangelicalism or faith or whatever. Um, if if they you know grew up in the church, uh, religious school, any of that sort of stuff. So so what's that been like for you? Uh, well, I think when you first asked me to come on the pod, uh, I was talking to David about this some um, because, you know, I, I did go to an evangelical college, Grove City College, mm-hmm. which maybe we'll talk about. They've been in the news recently, um, you know, in the, with the, the critical race theory, the panic has reached um, the, the tranquil fields of Grove City. Um, but I, I didn't really grow up evangelical. Uh, I grew up in a self-described fundamentalist uh, Baptist church, Bible church, independent Bible church, um, King James only, no drinking, um, you know, heavy emphasis on the end times, uh, oh, yeah. book of Revelation, that kind of thing. Uh, it, and I say self-described fundamentalist because it's not my pejorative. Um, it's a term like you know, independent fundamental Bible believing would have been the tagline if there had been websites, you know, uh back then <laughs> right they're proud um, of it they yeah yes. they're proud fundamentalists uh-huh. right well i yeah, mean it, it, there was that series of books called the fundamentals that right. churches mm-hmm. following those and we're like yes we are fundamentalists we are in keeping yeah. with the beliefs as laid out in this series yes um and you know it was very marked by i think the the cultural kind of moment in which the, the fundamentals were released and kind of, you know, this strain of Protestant Christianity, you know, kind of took root or, or you know, continued on self-consciously. Um, meaning, you know, the Fanny Crosby hymns, the no drinking stuff. Um, it, you know, it, it, it was very much a, a, of a piece with that. Um, and frankly, you know, I, I would have been expected to go to a place like Pensacola Christian College or maybe Bob Jones or uh, Moody Bible Institute. Uh, rather than Wheaton or Grove City or, you know, a certain kind of evangelical liberal arts college. So that's how I grew up. And when I, you know, arrived at Grove City, it actually was a bit of a culture shock for me. Um, I know that sounds strange, but like I didn't go to evangelical prayer group kind of small group study things in my fundamentalist church. Like, so that culture of going to Bible studies and sharing, um, you know, with others was, was foreign to me. And I had never listened to like Cademan's call or newsboys or anything like that. So, um, no, I don't (laughs) think so, but you know, it was just kind of, I, I really was not immersed in that kind of evangelical subculture. I really was like from a small town fundamentalist church that, 
Um, interestingly, I actually think this has spared me a lot of, um, you know, uh, therapy sessions or whatever as an adult, but th they were so suspicious of culture, that, popular culture, that they didn't try to do like, um, you know, Chris fundamentalist rock music, right? Mm. Like that's a contradiction, contradictory term almost, right? Um, or, or fundamentalist movies or something. So I was, it was kind of like, it, it was actually better than being force fed kind of evangelical crap, um, you know, or, or some like Christian version of what was popular, you know, uh, more broadly in the culture. Um, I was actually spared that and, you know, um, kind of left to my own devices. That's how I got into like Bob Dylan and reading Ernest Hemingway. And, you know, my parents weren't super, um, you know, they were pretty level-headed about this stuff. So when something like, you know, Harry Potter emerges and, you know, people in our church were worried about sorcery or witchcraft or something. My parents just kind of rolled their eyes, you know. So they were—they were. They were yeah. I, I had good parents in that sense who managed like a sense of, you know, equilibrium and, um, you know, proportion in the way they raised us. And it actually meant that, you know, by the time I arrived at college, I—I I just wasn't very, you know, um, in tune with a lot of my fellow students in that for like cultural reasons. Yeah. Now, be honest. Was there actually some Christian bands that at the time you kind of got into and thought they were cool? Like, did you actually get into Cayman's Call at all? No, never. No. Okay. So you're just I mean, like, I'm going Bob Dylan and Hemingway. I'm. I'm what about yeah, like when mind. Jars of Clay had had a crossover hit? I remember like the local alternative station playing that, and, and that's how I first heard them. And I was like, you know, this is kind of all right because by then I was already like done with Christian music. Yeah. I think I did eventually, because um, uh, another kind of strange uh, aspect of my, you know, trajectory has been immediately after Grove City, I moved to D.C. Uh, that summer, I uh, entered at the Heritage Foundation, as I think was mentioned. Um, but then I started graduate school at Georgetown, uh, a Ph.D. program in political theory. So I was in the D.C. area, and one of my friends from Grove City had gotten a fellowship at the Falls Church which uh, I don't know if some of your listeners will be familiar with that. They were one of the Episcopal churches that left the Episcopal church over, uh, well, basically, you know, the ordination of Gene Robinson, a gay bishop. Mm -hmm. um, but it had been brewing, I think, you know, for a long time. Um, and so, you know, that was, I, I, kind of, I became Episcopalian there. Um, but I was there for that kind of flashpoint, you know, uh, a huge fight that was really ugly. Um, but it was there that they actually had like a, in addition to the Episcopal liturgy, they had a lot of like contemporary music. And so the most I ever, the first I ever went was like, I did like Jars of Clay, uh, their album of uh, hymns. Oh yeah. Okay. Because okay. those are the kind of hymns I, I grew up singing, you know. Redemption songs is the name of the album. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. All right. So, yeah, that's fascinating because this is a long winded way was... to tell a Jars of Clay story, by the way. I'm sorry. <laughs> All right. All right. The Jars of Clay. I like it. Famously like it. <laughs> uh, affirming CCM musicians, Jars of Clay. But oh, this just, church, oh, okay. <laughs> this church that you were part of, the, uh, the Fall City Church in Virginia, this was a, a really historic church. I think George Washington worshiped there. Yes. And mm -hmm. as you mentioned with Gene Robinson, like this, this was massive news. I'm sure people who are my age or maybe older just remember this being in the media quite a bit that mm -hmm. the Episcopal Church, I think Gene Robinson was a bishop in New Hampshire. 
I was subscribing to Christianity Today at the time, and they had articles about Gene Robinson just every, you know, it's a monthly magazine, probably every month something would come out about it. It was a, it was a massive controversy. And the Supreme Court, it actually went to the Supreme Court, but they declined to hear the case, uh, the fight over the land, because it was a historical... Uh, yes, monument, that, I think, what I remember about it. Yeah, it was a classic kind of Episcopal story in that sense. Um, you know, uh, they, they didn't want to be in the Episcopal Church, but they wanted that beautiful 18th century building that George Washington had, you know, worshipped in. Uh, so it, it was, which, of course, not only for historic reasons, but you know, prime real estate in Northern Virginia, you know, we're talking millions of dollars in property disputes. So there's a really ugly, drawn out legal battle over um, the property, basically, you know, whether, because there was a vote, a, a vote held on whether to, to leave the Episcopal Church or not. And it was like 97% of the church voted to leave. So they said, oh, no, wow. this is our church and our building. But there were people who didn't want to leave the Episcopal Church. And they said, no, like, this is an Episcopal Church. We're Episcopalians. This is, you know, you're the ones to have changed. Um, anyways, it was a big, ugly fight. And, um, uh, you know, was just kind of like terrible to live through in some ways. Not that I was yeah. like a major participant in it. I was young and, you know, but I remember just, it was, you're getting updates, you know, at the start of, uh, uh, you know, um, you know, before the sermon, before the liturgy on fundraising and the legal process and lawyers and having that just be constantly in the mix at church was, was kind of lousy. Uh, really nasty. The LGBTQ issue has, has obviously always been, a flashpoint in evangelicalism and especially in fundamentalism, it, it seems like the Gene Robinson story very much kind of put that in the national media's attention and almost was just one of these flashpoints in the culture war, so to speak. You know, what was that like? Um, you know, I want to go back to the false church thing. What was it like for you, Matt, being a young a young Christian, presumably serious about your faith and you're interning at the mm -hmm. Heritage, so you're a conservative person, Yet you're seeing this nasty fight. Um, in, in what ways did that maybe change your faith or change your thinking with, with that stuff that was going on? Yeah, that's a really interesting question because I was, I was politically conservative and, you know, I suppose you could say theologically conservative. Uh, you know, I don't like to use political terms if I can avoid them, you know, in describing theologies. But, you know, for lack of a better term, I was pretty conservative across the board. But um it was also around that time, you know, where I had my first real bout with depression, um, which is something I've written about. Um, uh, I can, you know, send you guys the link if you want. Uh, but do. it was it was something that kind of I realized that like the kind of rigid fundamentalist theology I grew up with was just kind of not capable of like um being a resource to dealing with life as it actually was for me. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so I, I would say I kind of, you know, theologically started moving away from maybe, you know, how I grew up sooner than I did politically in some ways. Um, and it was, I think it was experiences like the one I had at the Falls Church um, that, that, you know, you know, kind of accelerated that process for me. Because I do remember I, I stopped going there the day they had like a conversion therapy guy give the sermon, actually. Mm. Um, you know, someone who kind of had prayed the way the gay or at least was white knuckling it. And I was just like, you know, maybe I don't want to give them too much credit. But to me, there's there's a difference between saying like, I abide by, you know, 
the historical teaching on sexuality, like I'm convinced for theological reasons, this is right. You know, you can kind of do that. And I, I, I won't like it, or I won't agree, but I, you know, there might be ways I can respect that, but I have no respect or tolerance for the um, conversion therapy shit. And, and even then I was deeply offended by it, including by the fact that, you know, my time of worship would be wasted by the charlatan. Um, and I, I, I really stopped going there around then. Um, what do you think is more uh, 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 offensive? What, what, what is, what is worse that the, the con- conversion therapy folks that are, that are convinced that it's a choice, not, not uh, part of who somebody uh-huh. is and are working to fuck up people's lives uh, that would agree with them or mm-hmm. somebody like Peter Thiel, who is pouring billions of dollars being a gay man into a movement that would prefer if he didn't exist apart from his money. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I think with conversion therapy, it sells people a bill of goods. It's a false hope, a false promise. I'm not saying, you know, there's never been anyone who went through this and, you know, managed to white knuckle through a marriage or something. Um, but, uh, you know, we just know, like, this really tortures people. Oh, yeah. You know, that it, it's and it's, you know, so for me, there's whatever its relationship to, you know, various theological positions. To me, you know, it's just the, the precise way the conversion therapy stuff um, kind of ruins people's lives. You know, I think makes them guilty, anxious, you know, self-loathing even more if they can't change and they're told they should be able to, um, you know, because I think most people experience, you know, being gay or lesbian or trans, you know, as um, kind of involuntary, whatever its origins, it's, which probably, you know, at the end of the day, it's some mix of nature and nurture, but its experience is involuntary and people, you know, you promise them they can change and that things will be better for them. And, you know, if it doesn't work out that smoothly, then it's, you know, it's just a really, you know, the wreckage of lives ruined and, you know, damaged by conversion therapies. It's just a long train of abuses. Let's jump in, I suppose, into mm-hmm. sort of the, 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 the wider topic here tonight, wondering just uh-huh. about as you do this podcast, as you have your life experiences, what your perception is and what, what you see in modern conservatism and the right wing and all that. Uh, one, one little thing, I guess, uh, as, a, as a way of starting this out, um, I was just thinking about how on the left, there's this constant refrain, or at least on Twitter, I guess, like it's become a meme, basically, whenever, whenever somebody on the right, like legitimately tries to engage in like comedy or art or something you know they'll, they'll, they'll say ah yes the the right uh, uh, is getting better at comedy and, and the and the libs uh-huh. are worried and uh-huh. and like okay like straight like actual normal art making and, and comedy i suppose yes the left does dominate those as most of those things come from a place of empathy but the right has completely dominated the the meme space of of the last decade or so and 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 comedy is a big part of that um why why do you suppose it is that that the right is is so dominant in that regard if they're in not the meme, able to do real in comedy? the meme department <laughs> yeah i mean i don't know i mean uh I, I suppose you know i'm not a meme tracker but uh taking your comment just you know stipulating that it's true i would say you know for one thing there are you know they, I think the, the sense 
the self-conscious sense of being a part of a movement on the right um, is one of the things that I've talked a lot about on the show. You know, like you really feel like, you know, you're kind of initiated into a, a tradition of sorts, you know, memes aren't th that highbrow, but I think there is something like if you're on the right, you're, the sense of being a part of something uh, is, is pretty strong. Um, and they do a lot for each other. And I think about like the TPUSA students who thought it was funny to dress in diapers, remember, right. and to, to mock like, I guess, you know, snowflakes who are such babies, they shit themselves, you know, whenever they hear something they don't like, they're triggered, right, whatever. Um, and it's like, that's not funny. But, you know, they did it and it kind of turned into a meme and it was something that like made sense to, at the time to their fellow, you know, conservative right wing, you know, um, fellow students on campus or something, you know, so I don't know how effective their memes are, in other words, or how much it's just kind of like an internal currency that just they amuse themselves with these things. They dunk on the libs. And but, you know, half the time, if you're an outsider looking at it, it just looks ridiculous. I don't know. I feel like that's the one right, theory. Yeah, I feel like they're right. And you guys have, I think, touched on this on your podcast as well. Um, they're very good at messaging and they're very good at talking points and then getting that out through their media. So whether that's memes or, or whether it's AM talk radio, Fox News, um, there, there's some podcast stuff. I mean, everybody has a podcast, I guess, but it seems like they're they're just very focused on like talking point and maybe a few sub points as to why that's true and then really getting those kind of basic arguments out there for their people uh -huh. to use yeah i think i think so um you know we just recently did an episode on um you know the seeming impending overturning of roe versus wade um and you know um it's going to be a three-part series um, the first one was on the kind of legal aspect, you know, the court cases kind of starting with the leaked, you know, Alito draft majority opinion. Uh, but the next one will be on the religious right, um, and which, as you know, is a really complicated story, I think. Um, you know, there, or there's at least been a lot of, I think, recent discourse and debates about how to understand, you know, abortion as it relates to the abortion issue as it relates to the origins of the religious right in the 70s. Um, but one of the things I, I learned was that Kellyanne Conway kind of cut her teeth as a pollster. Um, she started doing like feminine products, I think. So she was an expert at messaging to women and then kind of, you know, um, teamed up. I think she was like a protege of uh, uh, Luntz. The, the, mm, Frank Luntz. The, okay. the Frank yeah. Luntz, yeah. The, the, the pollster who I think is on Fox a lot and does, you know, these um, panels with, you know, five white women from Iowa or whatever. But and has like an exact replica of the Oval Office in his apartment or something. He's yeah, he's, he's a total freak. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, to, to your point, you know, so it's true that if you look at like public opinion on abortion, there's kind of, you know, everyone points out how contradictory and, you know, kind of what a mix it is, right? Uh, and that's true to some extent, but you can like identify, I think part of the complication is you can identify like, you know, there is a solid majority who favor some basic right to choose, you know, where you draw the line might be complicated. But what what they did so well was like terms like partial birth abortion. Those were like poll tested focus group terms. And so, you know, you take an issue where you're not the public's not really with you. Right. Like abortion as a whole. And then you find the wedge points 
you know, the most controversial, the, the scenario, right, where like someone decides to have an abortion, the, the non-existent scenario, I should say, where someone decides to have an abortion like five minutes before they give birth, right? These kind of extreme scenarios. Why, how are those in, injected into the political discourse, right? Because they're not the, the anything even approaching uh, you know, the majority of cases, they're not the, the main issues at hand. How do those things get injected into the political discourse? And it's, you know, the right-wing messaging machine. They pull test these terms and phrases and questions. They identify even issues where they're, they're kind of not really, you know, the public's not really with them. They find aspects of that issue that are more popular for their side. Sure. Um, I remember so reading I, George I, Lakoff's book, uh, Don't Think of an Elephant, and he's a linguist, right? And mm -hmm. a lot of it talks about how adept the right has been at coming up with like who can say that they're mm -hmm. opposed to life <laughs> you know, <laughs> right that is, uh -huh. that is like the best branding of an issue maybe yeah. ever uh like and and the left's response to that is like they're calling uh the anti-abortion side or or, or anti-choice like okay you're opposed to choice yeah. okay well that's that doesn't seem nearly as as bad as being opposed to life <laughs> uh -huh. yeah and i i think too it's kind of um um, ran parallel to the very bloodless, in my opinion, language of kind of centrist neoliberal Democrats who, you know, um, one of the Rick Perlstein's great points, I think he points this out in his book, Reaganland, um, is, you know, you can kind of see with the origins of neoliberalism, say, put it in the Jimmy Carter administration, that the language shifts to the language of like movement and process rather than tangible um, deliverable goods right. right so you're you know you're building a bridge you're starting a process you're you know engaging in um you know a series of studies or whatever and, and it's it's like a bloodless you know it doesn't kind of uh, get your blood up politically it doesn't kind of fire people up in the same way um whereas the right you know especially the religious right they're you know among other things religious language is among the most powerful we have Right. And we kind of see even, you know, in a very different context, you know, something horrific happens in the country, a mass shooting. And we reach for like the language of evil. Right. And the demonic even. And, right. you know, it's, it's almost like our ordinary moral language isn't isn't, you know, it doesn't have enough heft to it. Um, and th but those there's a reason, you know, we reach for certain terms and moments of crisis and um, and consolation. And, you know, it's because they're powerful. They they touch on, you know, the most the deepest things. And I, I think, you know, the right part of the reason they're successful, especially the religious right has been, you know, these are potent symbols, potent, you know, language. Um, and, and they, there are stakes to it for them. You know, like it's, mm -hmm. I do think there's a, it's very easy to say, oh, it's all astroturfed. It's just the right's money. But, you know, I, I think, especially like reading about abortion, there really was a sense in which, you know, conservative Christian activists, you know, they achieved a lot. Um, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the Republican Party wasn't turned into a vehicle for the anti-choice movement necessarily totally willingly. You know, it was a response to real demands. Um, and so I think, you know, for the for some of these people, it really they really believe it. And, you know, you're talking about the most charged issues and, and the most charged language around them. Yeah, you mentioned, um, yeah, just the religious right, the beginnings of the religious right around the abortion issue, late 70s, early 80s. And it seems like, you know, in 1980, the religious right was was fully going. And a lot of Christians, evangelicals, were, were getting on, on board with that movement. And, 
Yeah, why why do you think it was so successful for the Republican Party to bring in evangelicals when, you know, I just listened to another podcast. Uh, this was the Holy Post that actually are kind of thoughtful, kind of centrist evangelicals. And they were talking about evangelicalism in other countries is much more focused on social issues and mm -hmm. uh, helping the poor and other countries have more strict gun laws and, and evangelicals maybe even be would be more likely to support those mm -hmm. things in other countries. But there seems to have been some, you know, in the 1980s, just something happened that a, a group of evangelicals who want to take the Bible seriously and want to take Jesus's word seriously jumped in with a Republican platform that was, well, it would become Reagan gave immigrants amnesty, but would become like more anti-immigrant or suspicious of immigrants and, and cutting social safety net and no gun regulations. Like how did that co-opting happen? You know, it just, it, mm -hmm. it, it kind of, blows your mind in a way or at least my mind to, th to think about it in in that sense with politics yeah um well there's i think a couple of things going on i mentioned uh, rick perlstein's book reaganland and I, one of the really effective things he does because he's just a, a great chronicler of not just the politics but like what was what was on tv then you know um what were the percolating issues and you really see across the 70s you know um it wasn't just you know, opposition to desegregation or, you know, the tax status. It wasn't just abortion. It was, you know, Anita Bryant. It was more this kind of way, like you could, the way I described reading some of the sections of that book, did you just feel it all building? It wasn't any one thing, but kind of this confluence of a bunch of hot button issues that, that were activating conservative Christians. And I think, you know, um, one thing that happened was, I do think there's something, I'm Catholic now. I didn't say that at the start, but um, so my, where my theological religious journey has ended is I am Catholic now. Um, I've been Catholic since 2015. And I, I do think, you know, the Catholics really were firm on the abortion issue in a way that the evangelical world was pretty mixed. You know, yeah. I mean, you can go back and look at the record, you know, Christianity Today had that symposium with various doctors and, you know, um, even the Southern Baptist Convention. You know, they, they weren't, it wasn't uniform pro-life, uh, uh, anti-choice, you know, it, it took a while for that to happen. And I think the Catholic, the kind of the, the way Catholics and evangelicals came together in that period of time um, and, and kind of merged into the Republican Party, um, you know, I, I think it was uh, kind of on some social issues, the influence of Catholicism and the sense that, you know, Catholic natural law theory provided like a neutral almost secular language to make this case, right? Um, so I think there was a lot of interplay there, but then once they kind of were in the Republican party, um, you know, a story that's been told many times, it was true that Reagan courted them, you know, the famous uh, gathering of evangelicals where he said, you can't endorse me, but I can endorse you. Um, that was a, you know, a huge uh, factor. Um, even Reagan's end time stuff. I think he kind of, there was a weird way in which his own eccentricity sometimes mapped onto those of evangelicalism and, you know, um, were important. But I think over time, it's like, like a lot of what's happened in American life. You know, I, I don't like the polarization term too much because it, it kind of is a both sidesy term, but I think it is true that like you can look at the work of political scientists like Liliana Mason at, at the University of Maryland, you know, that talk about like mega identities, the way like you know being Republican and an evangelical Christian and white and like 
a certain kind of job, probably live in a certain kind of place, those things increasingly lined up. And so I just think there's a way in which, you know, our lives have been kind of swallowed up, our identities are swallowed up in these kind of, you know, um, political religious blocks that mean, um, you know, it, it's, the, everything kind of tends to converge in that sense. You don't have a lot of people who have like, are in a union, but are Republican and, you know, um, whatever, right? It's like the kind of mix of identities that used to be more common, those that just kind of, you know, the pressures of polarization and, and the way these things line up. I, I think over time, it just meant that, you know, evangelical Christians hitched the Republican party became more Republican than Christian in some ways. It's interesting. And and you, you've mentioned Reagan a few times. We, we were talking about him a bit before we started recording as well. And, and some of the parallels that you were talking about to, to Trump are things I hadn't really thought about before. And I wonder if you could expand on that. So, so we were talking about how with, with Trump, uh, many, many ex-evangelicals now, uh, many people that have been exceedingly troubled by the last few years that, that, that are or were people of faith um, watched the evangelicals around them that, that taught them right from wrong, that, that, believed in an idea of of right and wrong and truth existing um watch them hitch their wagon wholeheartedly not holding their nose uh to trump and and fold into their faith whatever the truth was mm -hmm. that that trump expressed and you know we saw that that famous poll uh that, uh, you know, prior to Trump, you know, 80% of evangelicals said that uh, <laughs> somebody with, with, with no with with bad moral, uh, moral center could not be an effective leader. And then they just completely flipped once Trump came in uh, on the scene. And, and, you know, we all took that as, okay, it was never mm -hmm. a conviction, it was just convenience, it had never been challenged. And the first time it was, they just rolled over. And mm -hmm. I'm, 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 I'm wondering if you could expand on on what are some aspects of of Reagan's presidency and his uh, who he was that mm -hmm. that uh, engaged evangelicals in in similar ways because I know you know growing up he was next to Jesus practically and he is <laughs> he I've never I've never been I've never been given as hard of a stare as I as I was as I as 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 the one I got when I declared that Reagan was one of the worst presidents in American history <laughs> um, uh -huh, I'm sure so, <laughs> Mm -hmm. So how 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 do you see parallels between evangelicals embracing and changing themselves and what they believe for Trump and Reagan? Yeah, what bothers um, them? yeah. I mean, it, it is interesting. I mean, Reagan was a divorcee. Um, he, uh, as governor of California, signed a liberal a liberalizing abortion law. Actually, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, he, he was from the perspective of a right winger. You know, he was imperfect. Um, like in terms of his personal life and past conduct and, you know, even some of his decisions as governor. Uh, and he, but he worked to really, you know, cultivate evangelicals in that sense. You know, I mean, he, um, like I said, he endorsed them uh, too. And I think that, you know, really mattered. Uh, but that's just to say, you know, they've overlooked personal foibles, you know, personal flaws before. And, you know, I think, in some ways, it's not surprising. Like, you know, what you want out of a political leader is 
to protect your interests, to do what you want, you know, someone who will, uh, is aligned with your vision. And, you know, um, I, th I really think the, a lot of the stuff about personal conduct and character, it was just anti-Clinton shit in the 90s. You know, and you had people like Bill Bennett, um, you know, who we Book now of know. Virtues. Is, yeah, yeah, the Book of Virtues, you're the death of outrage. Um, you know, meanwhile, he's, you know, gambling, <laughs> gambling his ass off, uh, you know, to the tune of you know, millions of dollars. But, um, you know, so I think they've always been more flexible. Um, then, you know, that kind of moment in the 90s um, would necessarily indicate. You're, you were mentioning a psychic that was in, oh. in the Reagan <laughs> well, yeah. orbit and influencing yeah. some of uh -huh. their decisions. They, they were huge yeah. in the new age, especially Nancy. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I should t talk about that. I do have one other, um, you know, reason why I think uh, kind of uh, bending to such a flawed, you know, candidate um, happened. But I, I will... I will Mention Joan Quigley now. Yes, she was the White House astrologer, um, astrologist, uh, whichever it is. Um, she was hugely influential, especially with Nancy. And, you know, Nancy was Ronnie's protector. Um, and, you know, uh, the Showtime documentary about the Reagans, I think it's just called the Reagans, uh, that came out a year or two ago. It was really good on Joan Quigley, actually, and had just how influential she was, um, especially like the timing of certain things uh, when Air Force One would take off, for example, and like we can look at the flight manifest where, you know, one time was scratched out and like 17 minutes later, it's scheduled to leave because that's when Joan thought it should should happen. Or, you know, um, during Iran-Contra, there was a spell where Reagan, you know, kind of the famous Reagan move of, um, you know, the, the press shouts questions to him as he's walking away from the helicopter and he you know, I, I can't hear you, uh, you know, refuse to answer any questions. That yeah, was because Trump Joan, that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Joan was, um, you know, Joan Quigley was saying it was like a bad moon rising or Mercury was in retrograde or something. So there's this period of time where nothing Reagan said about Iran-Contra would do him any good. Um, you know, bad juju was all around. So he should just kind of, you know, keep his mouth shut. And he did. So there really was a point where this astrologer was one of the most influential advisors, essentially, in the Reagan White House. Um, and, you know, it's, it's just, uh, it's one of those things that it's, everyone knows it. It's not a secret. Um, it's just ignored in the kind of enconiums to the greatness of Reagan among his admirers on the right. Hmm. And, you know, Reagan and Trump are, are two of those personalities that seem admired on the right. Although Trump has been, I think, falling in at least approval rating. And he started to really fall when he encouraged people to get vaccines and then you know this year he's he's off Twitter, so he's kind of been he's kind of been tanking. Um, but the right is just in an interesting place right now. There's a lot gathering around Ron DeSantis, uh, Matt, as someone who who studies the right, who talks to conservatives, has conservatives on Know Your Enemy podcast. Nobody has a crystal ball, but where, where do you see the right going from here? What what is the future going to look like? Because for me. I am scared, I guess, for lack of a better word, especially about some of this voting stuff and especially about hearing, you know, Trump's plan with fake electors that potentially Clarence Thomas may have some kind of state legal theory that would justify the overthrowing of voting for one candidate based on like what a state legislature might want to do. There's stuff out there like that that to me tears at the fabric of 
at least what we're supposed to maybe all agree on in America, that we should freely choose our representatives. And where do you see the right going? Um, what, what's going to happen with some of this stuff out there? <laughs> well, I share all your concerns. Um, and, you know, maybe what to, to get into an answer. The one other thing I was going to say about the kind of tolerance for the, the sins of someone like Reagan or Trump is I do think, you know, um, I, there's a way in which, you know, I'm hesitated to put it so bluntly, but it's kind of like an authoritarian mindset. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, when you think about like male headship in the home, right, um, oh, yeah. women not being able to preach. Uh, I knew in the church that I grew up, like if women wore pants, it was really frowned upon, you know. Um, so it was a very like patriarchal, um, you know, um, uh, proper authority and submission, you know, were watchwords. And I think, you know, it's just kind of, you know, obeying like a uh, especially a white male authority figure is, comes pretty naturally. So I'm, uh, but that ties in, I think, to some of my concerns because, you know, it, it is one of the things I've said on the show for a couple of years now is when I read, especially conservative intellectuals, and I saw their kind of seeming turn against, you know, liberal democracy, to put it bluntly, um, so what are they giving themselves permission to do? And then something like January 6th happened. And rather than like causing this like snap back to reality about the supposed, you know, um, uh, moderates or, or at least sensible Republicans, they're just doubling down on it, especially at the state level. And you know, they're making preparations to actually achieve, um, you know, uh, overturning an election this time. Um, you can look at it, you know, from the candidates who believe Trump's lies about, you know, a landslide election being stolen from him in 2020, you know, winning either, you know, someone like Doug Mastriano, the Republican nominee for governor in Pennsylvania is just an absolute lunatic. Um, I was hoping you bring him up. Um, <laughs> have you have you read his thesis that he wrote for the Air Force, I believe? Uh, ne I Nebuchadnezzar Sphinx? It's it's just uh, in, it's <laughs> that, just a, a the fever dream. Yeah, I was I was um, going to ask you if you could if you could tell because you tweeted that you were going to drop some acid yeah. and then live tweet commentary. <laughs> On his on his thesis, which yeah. you put in quotes, but he um, the, the putsch the putsch he imagines was like civilians against the military, so it's like he's complaining about the military being like basically you know getting too woke um, and right. like certain traditional military values or whatever you know um, losing sway. But so he writes it from he wrote it um, you know a decade or two ago, and it's a it's it's written from the perspective of 2018 and this kind of like coup has already happened against the military and it, so it's all speculative it's not like history it's not you know research proper it's like um, imagining this scenario and then kind of writing a fever dream about the consequences of it um but like yeah, that was one of the weirdest things like he got a yeah. he got a degree of some sort after yeah it, after yeah. writing like speculative fiction yeah it was crazy um, but, you know, like a military a, he, degree. Yeah. He's, of course, a true blue Trumpist who, you know, he was he actually was there on January 6th in Washington. Yeah. You know, this campaign um, sells shofars. Yes. Um, as, as and, you know, merch. what's going to happen if he's governor of Pennsylvania, you know, in 2024 and a similar scenario starts unfolding? Because in Pennsylvania, I should add the secretary of state who oversees elections, it's it's a kind of an anomaly. It's not an elected position. It's appointed by the governor. You know, so oh, this boy. right wing lunatic ex-military guy, um, you know, 
could be in charge of a key swing state and its election apparatus. Um, you know, and of course, this is happening state after state, whether it's voting laws or just, you know, putting people in place in these, you know, uh, having Trump is kind of run for these key uh, positions on election boards or secretary of state. Um, and, you know, we just know they're all going to go along with it. They, they, you know, the first time around, they essentially did the Josh Holly fist pump, the excuse making, you know, um, it's really, I, I really think it's hard to overstate the trouble that's coming down the pike. Um, I, I, it's, I just kind of don't let myself think about it as much as I might otherwise, because I just obsess over it and, you know, work myself yeah. up uh, into anxiety and depression. Unfortunately, it doesn't seem like uh, the, the ones in charge are thinking about it all that much either, because they're not really doing anything to prevent it from happening again. Uh, yeah, I was gonna, or sorry, Zach, were you gonna ask a question? Well, I, I, I was gonna ask, since we're talking about Pennsylvania, just Short little tangent, just Pennsylvania is particularly interesting to me between Mastriano and although this is not really an evangelical connection at all, but John Fetterman, um, I've, I've been aware of the guy for at least a decade now. Um, he seems like somebody that Pennsylvanians love and, uh -huh. and like the sort of guy that if he makes it into the Senate could be there a very long time. That's been my perception of him for a while. I I'm not, keyed in enough on local Pennsylvania politics to be aware mm -hmm. of what was going on. Like right before the election, I was seeing uh, uh, a lot of uh, Democrats pushing back against Fetterman for, I'm not sure what, something about uh, not in, talking to, to black groups or something like that. But right. I know he didn't, he didn't have a lot of um, uh, endorsements but but the guy that did have all the endorsements is Connor Landless. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. No, uh, I'm a huge Fetterman fan. Um, we just recorded a bonus episode about um, we called it Yinzer Country, uh, <laughs> uh, meaning uh, Yinz guys uh, want to drink a Iron City and watch the Steelers um, kind of thing. But yeah, Fetterman so Wawa versus to, Sheets. Uh, yeah, Fetterman's a Sheets guy. Okay. Um, uh, I love Fetterman. I actually think he is a really interesting candidate, and he's going into red counties you know he's saying yeah. every county every vote and he's kind of talking about the union way of life and you know going into these kind of red parts of the state like where i grew up um i mean where i grew up in blair county went for trump i think 71 percent in 2020 mm -hmm. um and it's kind of connection to my fundamentalist past is interesting too because uh, i i love to tell this story when, when i was uh like 18 years old 17 years old somehow i decided to read billy graham's autobiography just as i am and he describes Altoona, the, the area where I grew up, being such a hotbed of fundamentalism that when he went there early in his ministry, uh, he got a very poor reception um, for being too liberal. <laughs> you know, um, the, the fundies, wow. he was suspicious to the real fundies. And it was such a negative experience, it almost kind of derailed his ministry early on. And I always thought, gee, where I grew up, it was so, you know, because it, it, but it's like that in ethnic Catholics you know, who are like coal miners or whatever. It's a weird mix of Catholicism and fundamentalist Christianity. And, you know, this really the, the, the fundamentalism I grew up with is extremely anti-Catholic too. Hmm. This is yeah. all you actually see a situation where like, do, do you think Mastriano could win and Fetterman could win? Yes. Um, <laughs> like at this in the same election. Yeah, because Fetterman, is, he's kind of an outsider. He was, yeah. you know, he's the sitting Lieutenant governor, um, but he kind of like forced his way in um you know so i don't know he could 
he could run ahead of other Democrats on the ballot. Mm-hmm. Shapiro, I'm not sure. I don't, I've been out of the state long enough. I don't know how great of a politician he is. Um, but, you know, to me, it's like, the thing is, when uh, uh, someone who's really deranged like Mastriano gets the Republican nomination, it's, it's instantly almost 50-50. Right. Like if you have one of the two party nominations, even if you're someone who really represents like 15 percent of the population, the hardcore Trumpist base or whatever, you're still, you know, it's going to come down to you or the Democrat and people are going to go, you know, into the voting booth and probably vote, you know, the party they normally do, even if it's someone crazy at the top of the ticket. Well, uh, you did the diagnosis kind of of where the Republican Party is and where we could be going. But let's swing it to the other side, Um, Uh you being a leftist and talk about the Democrats. And like you, I'm a former conservative. And and I will say I have always hated the Democratic Party. When I was a conservative, I hated them (laughs) because I was a conservative. Now I hate them for totally different reasons. And it's just what we've been talking about that just it it seems hapless and pathetic that even the callback to what you're saying about the nancy reagan stamp which is just a small little thing but there seems to be this establishment i don't know if we can call it that or we want to call it that that doesn't realize what we're dealing with and that doesn't mean that we surrender our values of of trying to seek peace where we can or, or trying to be kind people like in life but when you're faced with a group that doesn't believe in democracy anymore or that people should vote and that should be the leader, like whoever wins, when, when we're dealing with that, it just seems like there should be a greater sense of urgency. There should be better leadership as like we have a looming crisis and here is what we need to do. Here, here, is, here are the people we need to elect. Here's the messaging we need to get out there. And in large ways, it just doesn't seem like that's happening. And and what do you think is going on with that? Ooh, you know, the Democrats are a tough topic because, you know, I'm kind of in a similar position to you, David, in that, you know, um, I never really went through like a normie Democrat phase where I was just like really excited about Steny Hoyer um, and, you know, um, whatever. like Nancy Pelosi. Nancy Joe Pelosi, Biden, yeah. yeah. Um, although Pelosi, you know, um, I... I I don't, I have a begrudging respect for her as like someone who can corral votes um, in the house. Um, she gets things done. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's the kind of thing I would say more often if I could, which is that, you know, they're not the best, but they got stuff done. And the problem is they're not getting stuff done. So, um, and, but more precisely, because uh, I mean, you can look at, you know, what this Congress has done in Biden's first couple of years, and you can point to things that have happened, but it all feels a bit strained to me, you know, when you're starting to, to talk about kind of like minor legislation that it might have done something good, but we're not talking about big ticket items that really, you know, uh, make people think that you're looking out for them. And especially when you, you know, get rid of the um, uh, child tax credit, right, that were that, like instantly cut child poverty, you know, uh, like forty like percent, yeah, yeah. Um, yep. It was like like one thing you could do: cut child poverty by forty percent, and it and it got you know um, 
it was left to expire. It wasn't renewed. Um, you know, you can kind of go down the list of, of bigger disappointments, but I do think behind them all is, David, as you were saying, a, a, a kind of inability to recognize the dire straits we're actually in at like the fundamental level of, you know, free and fair elections continuing in this country. Um, and that's why, you know, just to have done nothing on that front, really, um, voting rights legislation, even 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 if it wouldn't have been you know as robust as I would have wanted, but even something more narrow that just gets rid of some of the ambiguities in how we count electoral college votes, you know that would have actually been helpful too. Even if it, again was was you know maybe not enough in in some other ways, that was an important you know that's an important part of how they tried to steal the election uh, on January sixth, right? It was the the you know Pence hijacking the counting of the electoral college votes. So it's just. Um, I don't know why this is a puzzle to me. There's something about the culture of the Democratic Party that's sort of a mix of like college educated technocrats who go to Washington, who, you know, really love kind of like fiscal moderation and like um, not being as racist or bigoted as the Republican Party. Like they're really excited about that for whatever reason. And but the, it's just kind of like a bloodless politics detached from the concerns of ordinary and especially working men and women, you know, in this country. Um, it's just, it's hard. It's kind of like, they're just really bad at politics. They don't know how to talk about issues seemingly very effectively. I mean, even around abortion, right? There is that guidance that came out to Democratic candidates to talk, not talk about choice, but talk about decision, right? <laughs> I mean, sure, that'll do it. You know, what, um, you know, it's, it's, it's really like a negative political talent that just, um, you know, is baffling to me. And uh, I think you have to, it is kind of like a sociological and cultural thing that helps explain some of it. But it's also why, like, in a very strange way, I've been disappointed in Biden. I think he's just too old, to be honest. I think, I think he's actually fine mentally, more or less. But I think he's just real tired. And, you know, it's, it's, he's just exhausted, you know, and God love him, you know, he, he I would be too. But, you know, I think this is why, like, the, the moments where Biden seems to kind of break through a bit and do something effective are when he's just, like, telling Trump, like, you know, shut the hell up, man, you know, or, you know, kind of let Biden be Biden. That, he's not great, I'm, but I'm saying, like, he has enough old school, like, Irish Catholic Democrat thing where he sometimes can speak like a human being to the actual concerns of voters and doesn't sound like a, you know, uh, like the Buttigieg 3000 Technobot or whatever, you know, that is it's kind of a mark of so much rhetoric uh, in the Democratic Party. I think the Democrats' best communicator is AOC, um, like hands down. But from 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 an outside perspective, it, it seems that that Pelosi hates her. <laughs> <laughs> and and that, that most of the dem establishment is doing is is scrambling mm -hmm. to try to kneecap her yeah. um and i don't know why that would be i mean it's not like you look at on the right you know madison cawthorn yes he lost his his election uh -huh. um i thought it was interesting like he seems to portend sort of the future of maybe both sides of the party where like when he got into office he staffed up with message people, with with like marketing people, he was not interested mm -hmm. in writing yeah. legislation, and that's partially a thing on the right. Like they don't have to write legislation; they have Alec yeah, to do it for them. Yeah, essentially, block, block everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, where you know, 
whereas AOC like very clearly like staffed up with people that could prepare her for for um, committee hearings and stuff where yeah. she could have like specific policy questions to try to get to the root of an understanding and something and like build uh -huh. a good bill. And, and I don't know why the knives are out for her the way that the, the GOP knives came out for Cawthorn. And, it, and oh, the GOP yeah. won that fight. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, you know, it's just the thing. It, it's so frustrating because um, the Democratic Party instinct to punch left. Anytime, you know, things go bad, it's always the progressives fault. Right. Right. Like the way um, I mean, obviously, the machinations over the Build Back Better bill, you know, there was a point where my eyes glazed over reading the coverage and, you know, um, but it seems like, you know, that gets blamed on progressives. Um, you know, Hillary losing gets blamed on progressives. It's like anytime something bad happens to Democrats, they punch left, which is to say, you know, they're punch punching left um, against people who are pretty motivated politically and, you know, could be like a base that, you know, kind of propels the party. And, you know, the right, the Republican Party, they answer to their conservative base. Uh, and when they fail them, you know, there's often consequences. And so there's just a very different dynamic in the in the two parties. Um, I think partly because, you know, the Democratic Party is the party of coalitions. It's like a cliche, but it's true, right? You know, you have feminists, you have unions, you have school, you know, public teachers, you have, you kind of go down the list of like Democratic bloc groups. Um, whereas the Republican Party was, I think, not entirely taken over. I don't, you know, but you became a vehicle for the conservative movement. So they're, I think, a, mm -hmm. just a more ideologically coherent party in that sense. Um, and, and so the dynamics are different among the two parties. But this is why, you know, if I can plug, you know, I met, I said at the start, you know, I'm still a Christian, I'm Catholic, you know, I'm, it's very important to me. And, you know, um, kind of my shifting theological views, you know, tracked in some ways were run in parallel to my changing political views. And this is why like a, a Christian left, um, you know, people of faith who, you know, b believe in social justice and, um, you know, doing the things Jesus taught us, the poor, the widow, the sick, et cetera, you know, looking out for those people. Losers. Um, right. Uh, in the best sense. In the capitalist yeah. term. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, uh, it's it's something that I think a lot of my work, I you know, uh, until the end of March, I was an editor at Commonweal Magazine, um, a Catholic publication edited by lay people that, you know, um, was, was more liberal minded. And we published people like Thomas Merton and Dorothy Day mm -hmm. and uh, even Oscar Romero, I think a sermon of his back in the day, um, you know, and so that was the tradition I came to identify with. And it's partly because I see that as, you know, um, not to instrumentalize it, but all these problems we're talking about, you know, the, in the Democratic Party, I think, you know, believing in something <laughs> that's real and important to you and feeling that these issues are, you know, not just like your political preferences or like policy puzzles to decode or something, but, you know, to see flesh and blood human beings created in the image of God, you know, tr treated a certain way in our country you know, is such a scandal to my conscience. And I, you know, I think that urgency, people of faith who want to do better by their fellow citizens, their neighbors, um, whether they're citizens or not, I should say, you know, I, I think this is, again, not to instrumentalize it, but this is one contribution. People of faith who maybe have experienced some of what I've experienced, you've experienced, some of your listeners have, you know, I think it's important because uh, what what how else can you talk about some of what we see around us than 
the language of sin, um, you know, the language of, of uh, righteousness, the language of justice, the language of, you know, yeah. um, sometimes, you know, even the language of condemnation, right? Like every once in a while, I'll read a news story and I'll, I'll joke to my boyfriend, Max, I'll say, rain down fire god <laughs> you know yeah <laughs> or something right. you know uh yeah. you know uh reverend reverend wright was uh well right sometimes yeah i think you know yes that's sermon uh, not, to, not, not was, to cancel me but some, how can you really look at say the shooting in texas or you know to take a catastrophic example but even the smaller indignity, you know, uh, more narrow issues like the, the child tax credit i was saying you know where we chose as a country to just let you know, um, millions probably of children lapse into poverty because we couldn't get our act together to get enough votes to to continue that on. I mean, so like, what what else should you say? You know, absolutely. Damn this. Yeah, I um, like literally. <laughs> I I just had a conversation with my wife Michelle about J.R.R. Wright's favorite, you know, famous sermon, uh, "Goddamn America." I don't even know if it's officially called that. But it doesn't it doesn't get credit for being actually a very Christian sermon. It's right in the tradition of Old Testament prophets. Uh, it's very yeah. politically charged. It certainly is, you know, politically charged toward more our end of thinking uh -huh. about politics. But I mean, he, he was talking about America being made an idol. And he was talking about mm -hmm. God as a God that doesn't change, cling to that God. Governments can change, good or bad. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was the entire point of the message. And I like what you articulated there, Matt, because Democrats are also bad, I think, at reaching out to people of faith. And and you mentioned the Democrats are also, you know, a huge coalition. So it's not like you want to exclusively be like the religious right or like what the conservatives have done. There's there's room for atheists and agnostics and and everything, I think, mm -hmm. in the Democratic Party. But there still is room for, you know, if someone happens to be a Christian, a legitimate Christian in your life, talking about that on the campaign trail and and reaching out to those voters and, and being more open talking about um, what their faith means to them, you know, talking, talking about faith, because that's where a lot of people in the country are at as well. And I think yeah. that's another thing. That yeah, it's tough because, you know, one of the things I wrote a piece for the New Republic um, about a year ago on the religious left called like Wither the Religious Left. Um, and, you know, one of the things as I worked on it, it struck me is, you know, as America becomes more secular, or at least, you know, Deinstitutionalizing, you know, disaffiliation with organized religion, the nuns, all that, you know, um, the Democratic Party is becoming more secular too. Like um, its voting base, in other words. So, you know, it, the prospects for the religious left. I'm someone who, you know, there's been a lot of discourse around that in recent years, and I've often been dissatisfied with it because it's true there are a lot of great, you know, people of faith doing amazing work on the ground all over the country. Uh, but also it's just like, it's it's not gonna be a parallel to the religious right. Both the numbers, the strength, and I think, um, you know, because the, any religious left worthy of the name will be multi-faith, it's just trickier, right? Than being a bunch of conservative white Christians, um, which is, you know, reductive, but it's there is a real way in which, you know, the religious right is pretty much white and Christian. It's not only that maybe, but that's, I think, a fair, you know, um, descriptive statement and you know it's so it's just the two the religious right and so-called religious left they're very different i think in terms of just the dynamics at work their place in the various parties how they relate to the different parties um which is to say it's an uphill battle 
but you know, I do think we're living in times where things are going to get bad, um, and and people will be looking for answers. Um, and I think um, you know the well, I like the language of idolatry, actually. You know, but what we're seeing on the religious right, I think, is turning people away. And I hope they know there are alternatives. You know, um, and a lot Absolutely. of the comments I get about know your enemy surprisingly because i've been open about my own faith um how it relates to my politics and and other things um you know a, a fair number of listeners reach out to me and say like i'm figuring things out um and this is helpful to me and it's but they kind cool. of say it in a tone like i hadn't quite i didn't know you could do this kind of thing <laughs> you know or i didn't know right, these alternatives right. existed um and you know so i think you know, just being out there and being open about who I am and what I believe and, and my convictions is, you know, um, hopefully, you know, um, people notice it. And if they're searching themselves or looking for an alternative, disappointed with the way faith is, you know, handled and treated in our country, especially as it relates to politics, there are alternatives. We're not as well funded. There aren't as many of us, but, you know, we We're exist. Out there. <laughs> I, I, I like that you're hopeful there, but also, tempering it with saying that we're heading in a scary direction here i think for yeah. for a lot of us definitely for me the last few years really burst that bubble of the idea that will like outgrow racism uh, that that like the older generations are holding on to this and as they die off the the younger generation that didn't grow up ensconced and all that will will take their place and we will be a more equitable society but yeah. we see like even like nazism still sticking around and and yeah. if anything it seems that the right has figured out that racism is maybe their most effective way to bring in young people um so i'm like a geriatric millennial i think we're around the same age i'm 40 and it I'm seems 42. so I'm 40 as well i should say we, we were kind of hoping that when millennials got old enough got to be now to be taking over that we'd really see a massive difference and instead it swung absolutely the opposite direction and I guess yeah. I, I'm wondering what your sense is of Gen Z, if, if, if they give you more hope um, for, for things moving in that positive direction. Cause, no, because young conservatives freak me the fuck out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know. Um, you know, people love to say the kids these days, they're all right. Um, I suppose some of them are. I don't know. Um, you know, we're going to live through times in which um, one of the things I've been thinking a lot about is as things get worse, it becomes harder to be generous, right? To see the mm -hmm. other uh, as you know, someone unlike you as worthy of dignity and respect, care and concern. Um, and so I think as Christians, you know, um, one of the things I've just been thinking a lot about is because we kind of share this pessimistic view of the future, um, what's coming down the pike, one of the really important things will be to underscore like mercy grace, unmerited, you know, basically who deserve the biggest question of politics is you know, who deserves what? And like that question of what do people deserve? Um, I think that's going to be such an important question because there's going to be climate migration. We're already seeing that, you know, the disaster yeah. on our southern border, um, you know, as things get worse in that sense, um, you know, food shortages with the, the war in Ukraine, like material, material conditions become, I think, you know, um, again, uh, scarcity reigns as, as people feel like hunkering down because of uncertainty and fear about what's happening. It becomes harder and harder to become generous and merciful and, you know, treat people unlike you um, 
again, as, as being worthy of dignity, dignity and care. And that's, you know, for me, that, you know, that's going to be the test face, facing American Christians in the next few years, next Man, few decades. Who deserves you know, what is such a fascinating question, a way to put it, and especially in the context of the religious left versus the religious right. Having spent some time in reformed churches, it was very much hammered into us that we deserve nothing, <laughs> that we deserve death. Uh, that it is by nothing that we have done that we will escape that, that God was saving us from his own wrath, and we are awful, horrible people that cannot trust our own hearts. Whereas the religious left is often more kind to be like, yeah, we all deserve love and respect and food and shelter. <laughs> and, yeah. and, or and, it's, it's, it's kind of like you can put the reformed version on its head, like none of us, you know, from the standard of, from God's perspective, you know, uh, of uh, you know, none of us, in some sense, deserve anything, mm -hmm. but nonetheless, God gives us, you know, all the, um, yeah, all more the than we deserve. Exactly. And that's how we should look at other people, you know, like, you know, I think people deserve more than they've earned. You fucked up in your life. I don't think you should be, you know, sentenced to basically a life of debt, prison, or, you know, basically becoming a non-person in our society. Yeah. You know, um, those are the things that like no one, it, um, I, I don't take the direction, Zach, that you were getting at. I've been in those kind of churches too. Um, I know exactly what you mean. Um, and they're so close, you know, um, but so you know, far there's, away. there's the same way because when you say you don't deserve it, it's also an expression of humility, but you can see the way they turn that into oh, sure. a humble thing. You, know you what can I mean? take like, action here. Rather than yeah. saying you deserve nothing, and if you have nothing, it's because it's God's will. Rather than here's uh -huh. an opportunity for me to step in and be God's hands and feet or whatever to to help provide these things. Yeah. Or to, yeah. you know the way our, we discuss the deserving poor, right, or yeah. the undeserving poor. That's the thing. There's yeah. no, in, you know, for me, there's no deserving or undeserving. It's, it's just know, people. It's yeah. It's just people um, yep. who we're called to love. And you're without many strings attached. Any, I should say, really, you know, so I don't believe in tough love either. There's only love. It's either you love someone or not. There's no tough love, really, in my opinion. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. I think the, um, yeah, the, the reform people and, you know, I mean, I come from more of the reform camp too. And people who are along that theology that focus on the fall and like, oh, we're all flawed, we're all sinful. I mean, we need to remember in Genesis 1 and 2, God created us very good. I mean, and that's a, if you believe in the creator, if you're a Christian, God is saying you're very good as you are as a person. And we always have that, you know, Im image of God in us. Uh -huh. um, but yeah, I think we're, we're coming to the end of our time. And, and Matt, thank you so much. Uh, so generous and gracious with your time. Maybe no, a no quick problem. question for you. Sure. Um, the title of your podcast, Know Your Enemy. <laughs> Was that inspired by the Rage Against the Machine song? No, no, no. Uh, no, no, uh, it wasn't alas. Um, it was, it's funny when we, before we started it, my co-host Sam and I, Sam and Bell, we went back and forth on the name. Initially I, we'd kind of been playing with the enemies thing, but I want to call it friends and enemies, um, <laughs> which is, you know, still captures the, the Schmidian, um, you know, friends, enemies distinction. So popular on the right. Uh, but we went with know your enemy because it, I think it was snappier, but as I always tell people, um, how can you love your enemy if you don't know them? So uh, well, people it, always ask me, how can you be a Christian called know your enemy? Isn't that mean? I'm like, first of all, it's tongue in cheek, you know, like lighten up. But second of all, <laughs> you know, 
uh, we're called to love our enemies. And how can you do that if you don't know them? In my head, I, 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 uh, I finish off the title of your podcast, making it fully a biblical reference with know your enemy and stream from those who persecute you. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, all right. all right. Uh, Matt, Matt, thanks so much for coming on. We, we really appreciate it. Uh, no problem. Know, thanks for everything uh, you do. Great you know, you don't need us to tell you that it's a great show, uh, yeah, but it, but it really podcast. is. And we really appreciate the conversation. And, uh, you know, if if you want to mail us a letter with some Nancy Reagan stamps, uh, when you pick us up, just just let us know. We'll send you the address. <laughs> we'll do. We'll do. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Dave. Matt was such a nice guy. I, I feel bad that I accidentally called him uh, Matt Sitwell uh, just before we started recording. Realizing in my head, I was the only Sit last name. I think I I. I'm very familiar with would be I think it's Hank Sitwell um, the character in Arrested Development who cannot grow hair uh, played by <laughs> Ed Begley Jr. Um, oh man so Matt apo- Sitmen Sitmen Sit uh, yeah apologies for that it was weighing heavy on me for the entire last hour uh, <laughs> oh well it was a good conversation and be sure to check out uh matt sipman and sam adler bell's podcast know your enemy if you haven't already because it's a really good show featured in the new york times uh it's a it's become a popular podcast for people having deeper conversations about politics and what's going on right now this has been another episode of veterans of culture wars thank you so much for listening to us Wherever you get podcasts, if you could leave us a rating and a review, that would help uh, very much. Thank you. You can uh, follow us on Twitter at VCWPod. I am at Dave J. Lester, and Zach is at Muzak, M-U-Z-A-C-H. And uh, you can check out Zach's art and music, muzak.bandcamp.com. You can check out Dave's review of 2,000 Mules at uh, (laughs) DangerousHope.net. My review is very simple. (laughs) Haven't seen it. Not going to see it. All right. All right. Um, You're going to be really, really confused when the the D'Souzaverse takes over. Um, Thanks, everybody, for coming on down to the VCW. We really appreciate it. Remember, as always, the podcast is free, but you still need to tithe 10%.